Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. All right. Well, look, I guess that's why I'm here to help you uh, understand a bit more about Nehemiah. So let me get to my job. Um, Let me pray uh, before I begin. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation, the reflections of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight as we gather around your word. Amen. Look, just a quick flyover. Um, if you're new to church or um, you don't know a lot about the Bible, that's okay. You're welcome. Churches are places for people who don't know anything about the Bible, who don't even agree with anything about Christianity. They're welcome. You're welcome. Um, but I'm, I just want to give a quick flyover because if you, if I invited you to the third, you know, of the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings, you know, halfway through and said, "Hey, come and watch this," you'd be sitting there and you'd never know. You didn't know anything about Lord of the Rings. You're like, what, who's Frodo? Like, what's a hobbit? You know, and you'd be asking all these questions, you know, through the, the re- remainder of that movie. And the Bible's a bit like that. It's not a book. It's a library. It's a historical compendium of 1,500 years of history um, written by about 39 different authors in three different languages. Uh, it's, it's got poetry. It's got history. It's got apocalyptic literature. Uh, it's got biography, uh, letters, and so just do a quick flyover, not the whole Bible, but um, just that slide, thanks, Amaya, of where we are here. So in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. It's great. It's called creation, uh, perfect world. It's beautiful. God says, enjoy <laughs> to the humans. It's in joke for Amanda and I. But um, we were talking over dinner. Who, who first said enjoy? And I said, it's probably God at creation, creates this beautiful world and says to the first humans, just enjoy this paradise. But then the humans don't listen to God. They listen to this malevolent, um, dark being which somehow enters into the creation uh, we, we call Satan. And they listen and they believe a lie and they fall away from their high position as God's people um, in this beautiful earth. And the earth is cursed. It's, it's sin enters in and brokenness and death and decay. And, and then God says, well, I've got a rescue plan. So he calls one man, Abraham. And he says, Abraham, will you be my friend? And from you, I want to create a new people, a new nation. And I want that nation to bring my love, my salvation, my hope to the whole world. And I want my my Savior, my Messiah, the, the King, um, to come and through that nation to bring hope to the world. And that's Israel. And Abraham, by the way, um, Muslims trace their faith heritage back to Abraham and so do Jews and so do Christians. So Abraham is a pretty important person in the Bible, just uh, so you know. Um, So we're in Israel here and Israel has been a nation for about 550 years by this time, that reading that's just been read. Um, But they've been in exile. They kept disobeying God. They kept falling short. They kept um, going against what God had said for hundreds of years. And God kept saying, look, guys, um, you know, turn back to me, you know, listen to me, um, treat one another as I want you to treat one another, uh, follow me, honour me. And then they kept turning away and it went on and on and on. God said, look, if this keeps happening, eventually it's going to cross a line and I'm going to send you out of the nation that I promised you. And Jerusalem, the great city of God, the city that is going to be the place through which the Messiah would come, will become desolate and empty. And they're like, yeah, whatever. Um, and it, then it happens. That 587 BC or BCE, 
um, the, the nation is effectively, Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonians and then the Persians kick out the Babylonians and Nehemiah comes from Persia. God calls him back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to, to rebuild the walls. Most of the city is already um, underway. And, and this is where we are in this plan of the communities building the wall. They're all doing their part. Um, they've got a sense of, you know, mission again to be God's people. And last week, if, if you did last week, last week's message was about the persecution that came from outside the community. And this week it's about the threat that came from within the community as their relationships begin to fray and unravel, as they... Um, exploit one another, particularly the poor and the the needy in the community as they show a lack of care and empathy and compassion in the community of faith. Um, Nehemiah steps in to address this emerging threat as the community um, unravels. Now, so that's where we are. And then obviously Jesus comes a bit later. And then in the future, um, God has promised to bring a new heaven, a new earth, to bring all things together for good and to eradicate injustice and evil and wickedness and sin and darkness and death and hatred and violence from the created order and bring back that kind of Edenic Garden of Eden reality under Christ. But interestingly, this is like the Old Testament 450 years ago, God's people not treating each other very well. We've got a great history of this as the church of really, you know, messing with each other. And we're Baptists. We kind of have some links with the Anabaptists back in the Reformation period. And in that time, um, actually the Catholics and Protestants sort of went to war with each other in about the 16th century. But they both joined together against the Anabaptists who were like, we don't think that, you know, infants should be baptised and we think only adults should be baptised and we don't think the state, the government should enforce what church you belong to, that people should have freedom. And so we're about freedom and we were kind of non-conformists. And yet, listen to one historian, what he says about what happened in that time. Catholics and Protestants alike were intent on wiping out Anabaptism or Anabaptists. They persecuted anyone who accepted or especially preached the Anabaptist message, which I just summarized quite poorly, but that was about it. Seeing this, they there was a so-called heresy as a spiritual disease that threatened the souls of men and women as well as the stability of society. As such, Anabaptists, this, this is by Catholics and Protestant believers, were tortured, mocked, starved, imprisoned, beheaded, burned and drowned. And many Anabaptists expected nothing less than to suffer for their faith. Now, to be fair, Catholics have also persecuted Protestants. Protestants have also persecuted Catholics and gone to war. Um, There was a huge uh, massacre in France on 1572 on St. Bartholomew's Day where um, a lot of um, French Protestant Christians were put to death over a period of a few weeks, thousands of them. Um, by Catholic authorities and vice versa. And in the church, we've kind of done this really badly. We've messed it up a lot. And sometimes people say to me, you know, like, oh, you know, I I think, you know, the church is this or Christians are hypocrites or the church is this, that, the other. And I go, hey, I've studied church history. You don't know the half of it. It's worse than you think. Um, So come and join us, you know. Um, So in the community here in Nehemiah's time, Um, we see that we have trouble getting on, that when we have faith in God, when we believe, um, God begins to change us and work in us, but we still struggle, we still fall short, and we can turn in on each other 
Uh, we know that in, in our own lives, experiences we've had perhaps, uh, where things can go kind of pear-shaped and Nehemiah's onto it straight away. And there's these four socioeconomic groups. There's the landless and hungry, the over-mortgaged, the over-taxed um, to the king, and they had to sell uh, their, their sons and daughters uh, into debt slavery uh, to fellow Jews who were then selling them on. So they were really a community that was divided and, uh, you know, fraying and, and falling apart. And Nehemiah uh, speaks into this quite powerfully. But I want us to just kind of come back a little bit in this story and go, well, why were they in exile? Why was the city destroyed? Why did God so harshly, in one sense, it seems, though he gave them hundreds of years of warnings, um, you know, kick them out of the land and send them into exile? What, what happened? How did it break down in the, before they came back to rebuild it? What happened? And there was three key things that happened in the community over time that really started to destroy um, the community and, and provoke God to step in uh, to do something. And those three things were idolatry, sexual sinfulness, and greed. And I'll explain these a little bit more. So we're just heading out a bit now and going, some of these things are, are now appearing again in the community. And they will appear again in communities because we're human beings and these things um, can grip our hearts and can harm our community. Um, idolatry, sexual sinfulness and greed. These things distort the imago Dei, which is simply Latin for the image of God. That The Bible says every human being is made in the image of God. That we have dignity and worth. We are precious by virtue of of God's creation of us in his image. He's bestowed something of himself on humans that he hasn't done on chickens, for instance. Um, and I think we're having roast chicken for supper as far as I've heard, so that's good. Um, but <laughs> when, when, there's, when there's idolatry and sexual sinfulness and greed in our community, um, our, our image of God is distorted. God's image in us. And community is devastated, so community begins to break down. Um, I saw that in my own family. Um, my, my parents' marriage broke up through infidelity on one part of my, my um, parents, and I saw the damage and the pain that, that sexual sinfulness brought into our family over many years. Um, and these three things destroy lives, and they demand a divine response. God cares about how we treat one another. God cares about what we do with our bodies. It matters because God made us and we belong to God and he formed us for himself and to share in love for one another. So let's have a look at these three reasons. Let's just break them down a little bit. Idolatry, what is that? Um, it's kind of a word we don't use much. We might use it in a popular sense like, oh, he's my idol or she's my idol. Um, and it kind of literally means that it's someone or something that you esteem and exalt and put on a pedestal um, that, that you derive worth from and your identity from. So it could be a good thing. It could be, say, your children. It could be your job. It could be your reputation or things that you know, are, are gifts and good things that you put it in such a place that it becomes your God in a sense, that your heart is wedded to this thing or this person and, and your worth and value comes from, from that, uh, from what happens to that person or that thing. So, you know, for instance, um, if you, you know, have a real passion for your career and your job, that can be a good thing and you work hard and you, 
you do a really good job. But then it can slip over into it, it starts to detract from your other relationships because you're investing your heart. You're investing too much in this career and it's damaging your relationships with others. It's starting to mean too much for you and your worth, your value as a person comes from this career and, and getting it done right and doing it well. It starts to become an idol and God starts to kind of move further away in your life. So it's what we put at the center of our life that we derive meaning from that is the most valuable thing in our life that bestows our identity and ultimately only God should be that because God created us God knows us God deserves to be given back honor and glory and praise for who he is and what he has done and giving us life so Jeremiah the prophet uh, he's prophesying to the exiles as they've gone into exile and he says this He's speaking on behalf of God. Has a nation ever changed its gods, yet they are not gods at all? In other words, there are really no gods except God, but we make them gods. But my people, says God, have exchanged their glorious God, the creator, for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. One of the ways that idolatry damages community is we can place crushing expectations on one another. So, for instance, if you get married and you expect your partner, your wife or your husband to to fulfill you and give you all the happiness and everything you need and to be that for you, uh, you know, apart from God, you're placing these crushing expectations on them. Same if you have children or your friends perhaps or or maybe your, your career, whatever it might be, you place crushing expectations on others to provide to you what only God can ultimately provide in terms of fulfillment and happiness and peace. So idolatry destroys community and it destroys lives. Uh, Leslie Newbegin was a a missiologist. Uh, He worked in India for many, many years. He came back to England and he wrote about our culture in the West. And what he noticed was um, that our culture was quite idolatrous, that even though we were kind of Christianized, we really worshipped technology and wealth and power and fame and sex and other things. And then he says this about the Bible. The reason the recovery of the Bible is one true story of the world is so important for the missionary encounter, that's sharing faith, is that if this biblical story is not the one that controls our thinking or shapes our thinking, then inevitably we shall be swept into the story that the world tells about itself. We shall become increasingly indistinguishable from the pagan world of which we are a part. If we lose sight of God and put other things in God's place, uh, we're lessened and diminished as people and we're shaped by a story which ultimately isn't true, which ultimately doesn't give hope. The second thing that um, happened for these people to go into exile and was also in their community now in different ways was sexual sinfulness. Um, This is Jeremiah the prophet again. They have done outrageous things in Israel. This is heading into their exile when God punished and judged them. They've done outrageous things. They have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives. And in my name, they've uttered lies, which I did not authorize. I know it and I am witness to it, declares the Lord. The way we live out our sexuality, which is a gift from God, and sex is a good thing in the Bible. It's not like, oh, here we go again. Christians are always hung up about sex. You know, move on, get over it. No, sex is celebrated in the Bible as a gift, as a good thing. Our sexuality is a part of who we are. It's not all of who we are. But when it is not um, given some boundaries and some 
a context in, in, a, in the covenant of marriage, it can, like a fire can cook your food, it can also burn your house down. And sexuality and sex is a fire. And if it's just kind of let go without any boundaries, without any context in, in a loving, committed marriage, then it, it kind of burns and can burn. And this has been picked up in our wider culture now as we're kind of 50, 60 years into the sexual revolution. There are now secular, you know, non-Christian people, feminists writing about the failure of the sexual revolution, which is just kind of like, hey, throw off all constraints and just go for it, you know, do what you want. Just It's cool, just love is love, whatever. And there's some writers now, and one of them, I haven't read this book, though I've read a review and I'd like to read the book, um, but Louise Perry's written a book, just come out recently, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. She's a feminist, non-Christian author, and this is what she writes. Liberal ideology or progressive ideology flatters us by telling us that our desires are good, that we can find meaning in satisfying them, whatever the cost But the lie of this flattery should be obvious to anyone who has ever realized after the fact that they were wrong to desire something and hurt themselves or hurt other people in pursuing it. She's saying desires can get out of control. People can get hurt. This is what the prophets were saying to the people of Israel. Like you've got to manage and and be aware that your desires can hurt and harm if they're left uncontrolled and just out of control. And she goes on to say this. This could be something from straight out of biblical sexuality, a talk. This is what she says. We need to re-erect the social guard rails that have been torn down. To do that, we have to start by stating the obvious. Sex must be taken seriously. Men and women are different. Some desires are bad. Consent is not enough. Violence is not love. Loveless sex is not empowering. People are not products marriage is good. That's pretty much what the prophets were saying to Israel like two and a half thousand years ago in a summary. So thank you, Louise, for coming to the party. Amy Or Ewing, who is a Christian writer, uh, says this about sexuality. For the Christian, an individual is not purely defined on the basis of their sexual orientation or activity. It may be an important part of our self-expression, but it is not the final definition point of our nature. The Bible teaches that all human beings are created in the image of God and that human life is therefore precious. The individual has significance and dignity just by being human. Human, Every human is loved by God. This may sound banal, but it is actually incredibly profound. However we behave, whatever our proclivities, proclivities or desires, we are precious. And I should just state here, in my own life, I had to hear, you know, early on in my Christian life, uh, coming from a non-Christian background where, um, you know, I, I was engaged in, you know, sexual sinfulness, that Jesus' death paid for all sexual sin. That if you're here tonight and you're like, oh, man, you know, I've stuffed up or I'm really struggling in my sexuality, I'm really struggling with desires, like hear that God loves you and welcomes you and you're, you're included in his family, uh, it's not that you are excluded, but also hear that he wants to help you shape that, help you um, not be ruled by sexual desire or not be ruled by sexual addictions or lust. I just assume now, I'm sorry to say this, in a room of any people, that there will be people struggling with pornography. I just assume that. Um, and if you're that person, if that's happening for you, you need to talk to someone. 
You need to get uh, some support in this um, and know that God wants to help you have a better understanding and a fuller, richer view of what sexuality is than what is demeaned by pornography. The third reason that Israel went into exile was greed. It was greed. They were oppressing the poor. They were not caring for the poor and the weak in their community. Uh, And that is happening here. That specifically is the issue that Nehemiah is dealing with in this passage in chapter 5, that the rich, the powerful, the elite, are not caring for those in need and those who are struggling, uh, those who are doing it tough. They have no compassion and no care. Uh, for their fellow faith members, their brothers and sisters. And Jeremiah said this to the exiles as they were going into exile. They have become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord. Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? God really cares about people. God cares when people go without, live in deprivation. God cares when people are hurting and and doing it tough and struggling and other people around them aren't caring for them who have the capacity and the means to do so. God cares about that. I was thinking about that this week, and if I said to you, you know, think of a greedy corporate person, you know, what would come to mind? It's probably some, you know, middle-aged, fat, white guy in a suit, um, you know, with his buttons popping out, um, you know, eating a big lunch. I don't know, whatever comes to mind when you think of some greedy corporate person. But in our world today, it's really interesting. Just in the last week or two, um, meet the, the new greedy rich, uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Sam uh, Bankman-Fried. These two people uh, just in the past week have been, one of them's convicted, gone to jail. Um, the rest of the tech's not there, but that's them. Elizabeth Holmes founded a company called Theranos where she did apparently research, medical research for these breakthrough technologies in, uh, in blood research. But it was built on a lie and it was fake. At one point, the company was worth about $15 billion. She was worth $7 billion. And it all unraveled. And it was basically a fraud and people lost billions of dollars. She's just been jailed for 10 years. They're very serious. Sam Bankman-Free, this is just all freaked out for all, anyone here into cryptocurrency. I'm not. I would say stay away from it at this stage, um, just personally. But he's just been overseeing a company that's just unraveled in the past couple of weeks. And again, there are tens of billions of dollars missing and gone somewhere. And hundreds of people, thousands of people have lost life savings, have lost all sorts of um, capital that they invested. And this has happened. And when you think about it, you might go, well, that just, you know, they're just rich corporate people, you know, other rich corporate people are investing. But no, this will help. This will hurt the average person. If you have a superannuation fund or a pension fund in America, or um, this is going to hurt you. Um, This always trickles down and hurts the poor. It always hurts those who are already struggling. When rich people get greedy and when they lie and deceive and, and steal funds for their investment causes and then it all collapses, it's the poor down the chain that end up bearing the weight of that. So this is happening in our society, in our world. It was happening in Nehemiah's time. God's not pleased with it. Greed is right up there in the Bible with sexual sin and injustice against the poor and the weak and the needy. 
And we need to take it seriously and hear that. And remember, these three things, idolatry, putting other things before God, as God, sexual sinfulness, and greed, distort God's image in us and in one another. They devastate community and they destroy lives and demand a divine response. Now, Nehemiah is a good leader. He is a good leader and and he um, acts in this situation. Now, what I think in this story, what's happening is God is building up the walls of Jerusalem, but he's wanting to tear down the walls around their hearts because their hearts are hard. Their hearts are closed off to each other. God wanted to build up the wall around the city and he wanted to tear down the wall around their hearts. Their ultimate worth and identity was not in rebuilding the city, as important as that was, but it was as people who reflected God's glory, his goodness, his character and his purposes. Think about it for your life, for my life. What, what walls might God want to tear down in our hearts? Where might we be building walls against him and his purposes or against others around us? What are some of those walls that God may want to tear down in us? So Nehemiah comes into action. He calls the people together like we're together tonight. Um, he effectively reminds them of what the Bible had already told them, that they shouldn't exploit the poor and oppress the weak. They shouldn't be greedy. They shouldn't exploit each other and, and have the idol of wealth. And he reminds them of the, of the scripture in, in a roundabout way. Uh, so he, it's like what we're doing here. We're opening the Bible. We're hearing from it, letting our lives be shaped by it. And then the people respond. They're like, okay, you're right. We've done the wrong thing, Nehemiah. We have fallen short. And so they kind of repent. They change their thinking and their actions. And they commit themselves to a new course of action. And that's kind of what God wants to do in our lives when we gather as a church community. We, we hear the word um, and we don't need to be condemned by it. We just hear what God has for us, what, what he hopes for us, what he longs for us to become. And we go, you know, yeah, like tonight, there might be something here for you. You're like, yes, I, I need to make a change, you know. I need, to th- I need to take that more seriously. I need to act on this word and change. And the people do. They're like, we're going we're gonna to change Nehemiah. We're going to do it. Nehemiah makes sacrifices for the people. He confronts the devastating sin in the community. He offers a way forward. And he prayerfully relies on God. He's a great model of prayer, Nehemiah, as a leader. He was a godly and good leader, but he wasn't perfect. He wasn't a perfect leader. He made sacrifices for the community. We didn't read that bit, but a little bit further, he talks about how he forewent the governor's you know, special privileges and he invited people to his table. He, he didn't take the, you know, the extra privileges he could have as the governor. He made sacrifices for the people. And then at the end of the chapter, he's like, Lord, remember me with favor for all that I've done for these people. I just want to say, you know, leadership in any capacity is challenging and difficult. Whether you're a leader at, in your business, at work, or at a school, or in a church community, leadership is not easy. And we do need to rely on God, and we do need to um, you know, honor God in it, and also know that he'll see the sacrifices or the challenges that we face as leaders, and he'll, he'll honor us for that um, as well. He's good and faithful. But Nehemiah is a good leader. He's a godly leader. He makes sacrifices for the people. He tells them the truth because he loves them. But he's still a human being. 
if you read in that text, he actually acknowledges, well, actually, I've been lending some money to some of my fellow Jews as well. Um, he actually acknowledges that he's been part of the problem. And that's challenging as a leader, right? Uh, particularly as a pastor, when you're part of a church community and you're still a sinful, broken person too, and you're leading a people, and Nehemiah acknowledges, hey, I got this wrong as well. I'm one of you, and I need to repent, and I need to change as well. So Nehemiah is great, but we need a better leader. We need a leader who doesn't fail, who doesn't fall short, who doesn't get it wrong. And, of course, that leader is Jesus. And Nehemiah didn't have Jesus. The people didn't have Jesus at that point like we do, which is that beautiful revelation of God's grace and love fulfilled, his plan of salvation fulfilled. And this is what the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi says about Jesus and how his life, his death, his resurrection should model the way we do community. He says, in your relationships, turn to someone and say, in your relationships. In your relationships, the way you relate, like imagine Nehemiah's community, Paul's writing to them, imagine. The way you relate to each other, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Wouldn't this be a beautiful community? if we had the same mindset of Jesus. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're not perfect and God's shaping us and changing us like this community. We're going to get it wrong sometimes. We're going to fall short. That's okay. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus in the community of faith, who being the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used and grasped to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Or he emptied himself of his divinity by taking the very nature of a servant. This is God become human being, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, as a human being. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And this is the answer. Jesus is the answer to the problems of the human community, where there is idolatry, where there is sexual exploitation and sinfulness, where there is greed. Jesus is the answer to bring the type of community, to create the type of people who will reflect God and his goodness and his grace. And Nehemiah and the people, they're on the way. They're doing that work. They're gathering together. They're reading and hearing God's word. They're celebrating at the end of that passage. It says that they all said, Amen. Can everyone say, Amen? And they praised the Lord. They sang praises to God. It was a time of worship as they worked out, Hey, we're getting this wrong, people. We've got to do better. God, help us. Help us become the people you want us to be. And now as God's people in Christ, we see Jesus, the image and perfection of God in human form, broken for us, broken for our brokenness, giving himself for us so that we might become the people that he wants us to be. Let me pray for us as the team comes up. Father, I want to thank you for your love for humanity, that you care about us, you love us, and you care about how we treat each other. You care about the hurt and the harm, the violence, the hatred, the exploitation, the indifference 
and the greed which harms human communities. You care about it. It's not what you want for us. Thank you, our God, that Jesus has come to pay for all of that brokenness, all of that sinfulness, to bear in himself the judgment that we deserve. Lord, your people Israel were sent into exile. They were judged harshly for their sin and sinfulness. They paid a price for that sin and sinfulness. And yet here we are, knowing that Jesus himself has paid that price for us, That's that sacrifice given for us. Lord Jesus, help us live for you. Help us become the people you want us to be. Help us not um, put things and people before you in, in terms of worth and value. Help us not exploit each other and, and abuse each other sexually. Help us not be greedy and indifferent to the hurting, the broken, the needy in our community. Lord Jesus, make us the people you want us to be. Help us to reflect your servant heart, your attitude, Lord. And I pray, Lord, for people here tonight who um, may be struggling in, in any particular way, Lord, who may be feeling distant from you or um, uncertain about how you would respond to them. Lord, I pray that you would help them know that uh, you love each one of us preciously. You love us as precious people. And Jesus has come given his life in love for us all and that you will accept us and welcome us as we follow you as we put our faith in you you will change us and shape us over time to become the people that you want us to be thank you lord we love you bless our community bless our church communities to be places of love of welcome places of truth and grace places of support and accountability and, and nurture and fellowship places of compassion and empathy places where you will be glorified Lord and your people will be built up and all people will come to know how good and great you are. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.